Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us today on your lunch hour and thank you ever so much for the overwhelming response to our parenting webinar series. I'm Bipasha and I'm from the Eaton House brand and communications team and I will be your host for today's webinar on creating safe environments for your children. Now it isn't uncommon for parents to experience situations where children get hurt. In hindsight, we evaluate the environment and the circumstances that led to the accident and learn from them. However, wouldn't it just be brilliant if we were able to preempt these circumstances and avoid or perhaps minimize some of these accidents? To support families navigate these situations and keep children safe, we have with us today Dr. Diana Lin. Dr. Lin is a fully registered pediatric specialist with the Singapore Medical Council since 2012. She has accumulated almost a decade of working, of, of experience working in children's emergency. She's currently a pediatrician at the Urgent Care Clinic International, where she manages the treatment and care of under 16s from routine needs to more urgent conditions. Dr. Lin also remains a visiting consultant with the Children's Emergency Division in the Department of Pediatrics, Kutekpoat National University Children's Medical Institute, National University Hospital. She's also a mother to twin boys, and we are thrilled to have her with us today. Now, before we begin, a few housekeeping rules. Please drop your questions in the chat and we will address them after Dr. Lynn's sharing. For those of you who have already sent us the questions, thank you so much for doing so. Dr. Lynn has kindly woven them into her presentation. Your cameras and mics have been turned off, so you don't have to worry about it and can relax and enjoy the talk. So let's dive straight in. Dr. Lin, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Vipasha. Let me just pull up my slides. Thank you again, once again, Vipasha, for the very warm introduction. I'm really excited to share my experiences on child safety with everyone today. So this slide shows the outline of today's talk where I will be covering the following points. Uh, number one, what is a child safe environment? Two, what are the common indoor safety hazards to look for? Three, how can we keep children safe outdoors, particularly looking at car, water and playground safety? And lastly, what are the common accidents and injuries and the necessary actions that parents should take? So besides the points mentioned, uh, I will also be covering uh, some of the questions submitted pre-event in the relevant sections of the talk. And hopefully, I will have some questions left at the end. I will have some time left at the end to take a couple more questions. So in general, the idea is to take home basic principles and we can always check the details later. So let's move on to the... Sorry? Yeah, okay. So uh, the first section, the first segment is what is a child safe environment? Just a couple of definitions so that we're all on the same page. So there are five big components um, that of nurturing care that have been identified by the five big organizations listed on the top of the slide, WHO as well as, well as UNICEF. So of interest in today's talk, safety and security together with the other aspects are needed to help a child develop their full potential. So it is important to emphasize that when we think about safety and security, we are referring to physical as well as emotional aspects of a child's safe environment. Why is this actually important? So Abraham Maslow, this American uh, psychologist, postulated a theory of needs in the form of a pyramid 
where physical and emotional safety form the second most basic tier of need to self-actualization, which is actually at the peak of the pyramid. So similar to the earlier slide, physical, social and emotional security actually allow a child to build relationships, develop their confidence and to meet their potential. Studies have also shown that they are less likely to develop at-risk behaviours. So let's move on to something a little bit more personal. So this is one of my favourite quotes and something that I constantly remind myself. So no parent can childproof the world. A parent's role is to world-proof the child. So as parents, it is really the time when we run our children to explore, to learn and to have fun. Right, falling down, bumps, scratches, bruises are just part of the whole package. But what we really don't want is for all these small accidents to turn into serious injuries. And that's where just a little bit more information and planning come about. Uh, as our children grow and they start to be curious, we need to be alert for new habits. So for example, an infant that starts to be more mobile and is now starting to crawl or walk, the, the injuries that the hazards that were there for, were not there before might now exist in your house. So you may require some modification of your existing home environment to allow your child to play and still have a safe and creative place. So the important thing is supervision um, and we should start early to teach your child in an age-appropriate manner what is safe and what's not. So for today's talk, we will actually be focusing on the physical aspects of a child's safe environment. So a little bit more technical in terms of the aspects. So MUK Children's Emergency actually conducted a study on trauma in the year 2002 to 2003. So children under the age of five are more likely to sustain injuries, especially those under one year old. So this is not unexpected as infants actually spend most of their time indoors. And now for a little bit of audience participation, let's run a poll so, what proportion of childhood injuries actually occur at home? Uh, so, Eunice is going to be putting up a poll. Let me just trouble you to click and think in terms of the percentages. What is more likely to occur at home? Is it 10%, 30%, 70% or 90%? I see a lot of very enthusiastic uh, participants. Thank you very much. Okay, we're just going to wait a little while more. Okay, so I'm, I'm be closing the poll in a couple of seconds. Okay, so we're going to close the poll in a five, four, three, two, one. Okay, let's have a look at the results. Wow, okay. So uh, if, um, all the options have been voted for and the majority have actually chosen 70%. Okay, let's have a look. And you guys are right, brilliant. So it is in line with the studies. It showed that almost two thirds or almost 54 to 69% of these episodes occurred at home. And it's interesting because with the pandemic, we're actually back to home-based learning. So you're going to be spending a lot of time with your kids at home, whether you really like it or not. And a majority of these fall, uh, incidents were actually false. Um, so it's interesting that we've come one whole decade and we're doing the same thing now. So majority of these incidents were false and we will be covering some of these injuries in the last section of the talk. So let's move on to section two. Uh, the first section was a little bit more technical. So something a little bit more practical now. So what are common indoor safety hazards? 
we've been looking at the different rooms in your house um, and sometimes we actually realize very interestingly that there are potential hazards. Of course, uh, you can keep your child safe by identifying these risks. You can modify them or you can remove them completely. Um, but the important thing to note is that despite everything that you do, all your best intentions and all your preventive measures, accidents can still happen. That's why supervision is important. In the last section of the slide, I will also be going through what to do for the different injuries. So when do you panic and when do you not? So a couple of pictures. So these are some safety hazards that are demonstrated with the baby walkers, the baby changing table, as well as the sarong cradle. So this photo actually shows the determination and creativity of children when they really want something. So looking at this photo over here on the left of them, uh, th this child is actually even using the drawers uh, of a dresser as stairs. The children can be extremely creative when they want to. So this photo was actually um, to show a couple of risks, whether they are open doors, sharp edges and uh, ajar doors. Not only about doors, as anyone who knows me knows that doors are pet peeve of mine, whether sliding windows, hinges or doors. Um, it's a bit early in the talk, but I thought I'll just share a personal case that I just saw in the hospital yesterday. So basically, we saw a six-year-old whose finger was caught in the hinge of a door. She had been playing with the door and she sustained a partial amputation of the fingertip. So doors are really, really dangerous. So beware of all these risks. You know, you need to teach your child from young not to play with doors. My credit to the mom who actually brought uh, the stump to the hospital. So do remember that the stump should be kept in a bag before you keep it in a separate bag of ice. Don't put the stump directly with ice because this may affect the viability of the stump and then sometimes you possibly cannot reattach uh, re the stump during surgery itself. So if it does happen again, remember keep in a clean bag, then in a bag with ice. Never keep the stump directly in contact with ice. So let's talk about prevention of indoor injuries. One important principle I would say is try a child's eye view. So you get down to your child's height, you walk or you crawl around in the space and you pay attention to hazards that you might not have noticed from your height or your point of view. And by looking at the space, you can actually may see accidents waiting to happen. So I have a couple of pictorials of the different rooms in the house. Um, but in the interest of time, we will not be touching on every single point, but instead we will try to mention the more significant ones. So while at home, the living room is where a lot of children spend their time either playing or studying. So it's hence important to identify the possible safety hazards. So look at your house. If you're at home now, it's, it's good. Look around, get the, down to your uh, child's eyes and then have a look and see why it's potentially dangerous. So most Singaporeans actually stay in high-rise buildings and I cannot stress enough the importance of installing window grills and keeping them locked. So um, very sadly, we have seen young, younger siblings pick up from naps and they wander to the windows when the caregiver has gone downstairs to wait for the older sibling's school bus, right? It's just a very short five minutes, you wait for the school bus, you bring the older sibling up. But and they leave the younger child sleeping at home uh, and presumably still sleeping. So I've seen younger siblings wander to the window and windows that are not locked with no grills. And there have been very unfortunate and tragic events. So it's important to think about installing grills and really locking your windows. 
Um, so kids have also failed to see glass cabinets, glass doors and walks and knocked into them and sustaining significant injuries, the glass shatters and they get lacerations over the entire body. So I will be also speaking on baby walkers in the subsequent slides. So looking at the bathroom, there are some significant water safety hazards in the bathroom. Uh, do note that drownings can occur in seconds to minutes and even in a few centimeters of water. So do remember to overturn your pails and to close the cover of the toilet bowl. So we have seen many children fall in the bathroom, including my own kids, sustaining a variety of injuries from head injuries to lacerations to fractures. So try to keep the floor as dry as possible, reasonably possible in the bathroom. So in the kitchen, there are several burns and scalds risks in the form of uh, overturned pots or even oven doors. So the lid, uh, the handle of the pot, for example, turn it inwards. Otherwise, a child can actually pull and overturn the contents. Most uh, oven doors are double, double barrier. There are some models that only single and children have quite sensitive skin. I had a child who actually touched the door, oven door. Mummy said it was almost one and a half hours after the initial baking. And that the child still sustained second degree burns and blisters on the hand. So, uh, you know, you have to look at what are the safety hazards in your own kitchen. So the other interesting case I had was a child who had run to her mother while her mother was actually frying some muruku or the kuali in the small indoor stove in the kitchen. Um, but as the muruku went in, what happened was that she sustained several oil slash injuries actually on her face. So it's important to teach our children about these safety hazards from young, running into the kitchen, when cooking is going on, mummy's busy, for example. So these are actually significant uh, safety hazards um, in the kitchen itself. So I will be covering some of the choking risks in the last section of the talk. So in the bedroom, um, double-decker beds, they are good for space saving, right? But they're actually potential fall risks, especially in children under the age of seven. And looking at the other aspect of the bedroom, one common presentation to doctors would be infants at the age of four to six months rolling off the bed or the diaper changing table. Um, and parents sometimes report in surprise that this is the first time that the child has ever rolled. And despite you pulling out all the pillows at the side to try to build a barrier, babies have been uh, able to roll off the barrier and land on the floor. Yeah. So this is a Sauron cradle for those who are not familiar. So it has a very cultural context. So this is an automated rocking mechanism and it can definitely pose a fall risk, especially with very wiggly infants. Yeah, they can wiggle off and fall off onto the, the floor. And over here on this course, I do not recommend co-sleeping with your child on the same bed. In the same room is a good idea, especially under the age of six months. Uh, with your night feeds, with your keeping an eye on the child because of the risk as well, sudden eating there. Um, but co-sleeping on your steam bed is not a good idea. We have actually seen parents, of course, unintentionally falling asleep from caregiver fatigue and actually being pressed uh, and pressing on the body of the infant with some very tragic uh, outcomes. Okay, let's move on to a bit of furniture safety. So this slide is actually a summary of some child-proofing furniture safety devices. It's important to note that you do not have to place them everywhere in your house, right? The choice can be home as well as child-specific. 
So I clicked a couple of photos over here to show a couple of uh, examples. So this is a, a child safety latch, yeah. And uh, you also have a corner protector with a sharp edge. So this is just a additional reinforcement. And uh, this photo is actually of my front door, yeah. Uh, so this is my jaw. My kids love to pull the latch. The door is actually really, really heavy and it poses a risk to crush injuries as well as again amputation. So this white portion here is actually a child safety lock with a latch that I've gotten off, bought online and just put it. So it is a little bit inconvenient, right? It takes a couple of seconds, but what is that in compared to preventing an injury to your child's fingers? Yeah. So of course your door may require a different mechanism. Uh, so think about your house specific uh, safety hazards. In addition, do think about reinforcing your furniture to walls and shower stall doors, uh, sorry, shower glass stalls. Uh, if you have, think about reinforcing it with a shutter resistant film. We have been seeing a couple of cases where the kids, of course, were in the bathroom, unclothed, ready to take a shower, and for some reason that nobody knows, the shower glass just shattered. And because they are naked, then they sustain quite significant injuries to the rest of their body. Um, it has happened to quite a few cases already. Also think about securing your cords and blinds because they are hanging or asphyxiation risk as well. With regards to fall prevention, um, this slide actually highlights the injuries that we see often. As I mentioned earlier about babies rolling off the bed, toddlers falling while wearing socks. So this is thing that I don't really get in Singapore. A lot of kids are, are wearing socks at home because a lot of parents feel that they will be cold. Uh, it's quite challenging in a humid uh, climate to just be cold on your feet. If you really must wear socks, then think about wearing non-slip socks instead. Yeah. So this is a sarong cradle and this is a baby walker. They have kind of fallen out of favor in recent times. Um, so, you know, most modern parents don't really use, but we still see a couple of parents who use these uh, at home. Um, the important thing to highlight is that, fun fact, studies have actually shown that children can travel as fast as three feet in one second while in a baby walker. And the variety and extent of injuries sustained has actually led the American Academy of Pediatrics to call for a ban. For that reason, you don't really see much baby walkers nowadays. Oh, I hear somebody. <laughs> okay, so we'll just move on to the third section. So now we'll be looking at some outdoor safety. Uh, if you have any questions along the way that, that uh, pop up in your minds as we are going through the slides, please leave them for later or post them in the, in the chat window and we'll try to address them. So we will now be looking at outdoor safety. We'll be looking at outdoor water as well as car, some car safety tips. Uh, this section was very interesting. There were a lot of questions posed by parents in this section. So outdoor seems to be a very big point to focus on, uh, even though we know, now know that most of the injuries occur indoors. Yeah, uh, But we will try to answer some of the questions posed by the parents. So these are photos of playgrounds and safety hazards, uh, a couple of quite retro looking pictures, but some of these playgrounds still exist in Singapore. So this slide is really high at 2.2 meters. This is a significant risk factor for any fall because we usually use the child's height as a benchmark. Yeah, so nobody is 2.2 meters tall in Singapore as a child, so this is definitely a significant risk factor. So this slide over here with uh, the yellow uh, colored play, equip, playground equipment, 
So there are high steps as well as wide gaps in the, in the equipment to be aware of. And this is a special shout out to Monkey Bars, another one of my keys. Uh, falls from this can cause any and every injury. Um, yeah. So now because uh, moving with modern time, this is just a brief glimpse into the world of indoor playgrounds, our children. And us actually are pretty fortunate nowadays. This is Super Park in Suntec. This is the trampoline park. This is a photo of a play gym at Tampanese Hub Library. Look at the amount of uh, fun that kids can have. Um, this is a very colourful photo. It's a bouncy castle park at Pandan Gardens. And this is the new park that was at East Coast, uh, which have taken over Big Splash. And the play tower, I was amazed to find out it's 11.9 metres tall. So very fun, but potentially dangerous. So think about the principles of outdoor playground safety. They should apply to these indoor places as well. The thing about all these places, what is interesting is that when you go to a play gym, they get you to sign an indemnity form, right? As a parent, if you go in, you say, I absolve the blah, blah, blah place from all injuries uh, my child sustained. So it means that the onus of the supervision is on you as a parent. Yeah? So you can uh, shut off when you bring your kid to the play gym because you still have to watch them. So, Let's go to a little bit more specifics. So allow your child to explore and have fun at the playground, but remember that supervision is very important. So I routinely run a mental check when I bring my own kids to the playground. It's just to heighten my own awareness of safety hazards, which are usually not apparent to children who are having fun, right? So if you know that, hey, you know, the monkey bar is off limits for them, for example, it's not age appropriate, then you've got to say, tell your child that, you know, you're not tall enough now, it is dangerous, for example, and tell them and make sure that they don't go near the monkey bar. So, again, about age-appropriate equipment, the other aspect of playground safety would be safety aids such as helmets and protective gear. It is difficult. From a personal experience, it is. Um, but it's important to start early because uh, hopefully the resistance is minimal when you start at a younger age. So these are a couple of playgrounds. Uh, in contrast with the earlier pictures of the playgrounds, the current playgrounds have a little bit more padding. They have some impact absorbing surfaces. And if you look at the corners now of the equipment, they're all more round-rounded compared to metallic surfaces, for example, um, and they don't have funny parts that are sticking out. And usually these playgrounds now have the signboards with the recommended ages. So you see, for example, one to five. It's important to note that it needs to be sized to your child as well. So the equipment sometimes is recommended for the child's height. So if you have a very small size, eight-year-old for example, then even though the playground equipment is for this age, it may not be entirely suitable. So you need to be aware of uh, what are the issues that your child could face even if they go to the age-appropriate equipment. So as mentioned earlier, children can drown in a few centimeters of water. And it's important to be aware of water safety in these different scenarios and circumstances such as mentioned here. So just to highlight again with the pails, for example, overturn the pails, this amount of water is enough for drowning to happen. Um, when you go to the swimming pool, do note that not all swimming pools, especially those in the condo, for example, have lifeguards or rescue aids. So it is really easy to be distracted by our phones, our friends, when we are not in the pool with our children. So supervision is of paramount importance as children can drown in seconds to minutes. 
So do not be loud in your false sense of security, whether with flotation devices, shallow pools, or even the swimming class, as all of these have led, unfortunately, to drowning incidents happening before. So moving on to otherwise a fun fact, there is something called Swim Safer in Singapore, which is a national water safety program that was introduced in 2010. So the Ministry of Education has also adopted this program for the primary three students and uh, all schools, uh, local schools are mandated to go through the Swim Safer program. So we're going to move on to road safety. So moving on to road safety, by taking a child's eye view, we can understand their behaviour on the roads better. So wanted to share another personal story. So I once attended to this three-year-old, I think it was in January this year or Feb, uh, who ran across the road at a traffic junction. His father was holding on to the younger sister that was uh, 10 months. And unfortunately, he was knocked down by a car and flung a distance. Um, we were very, the dad was very surprised that he ran across the road and the child just could not tell us why he, he had done so. He probably did not understand the concept of danger, neither was he able to judge the speed and the distance properly. The traffic light was actually red, it wasn't green. So, but fortunately he recovered and he was discharged quite well, so it's a, you know, it was a happy outcome still in the end. So, this is a question I get sometimes, why is it important for a child to be in a car seat? So, even though it is a legal requirement for everybody to be belted in the vehicle, um, we often see children involved in road traffic accidents who are unrestrained, so not belted at all. So, during a car accident, it's important to note that their heads will be thrown forward as shown in this picture. And what happens is that their brain would be injured as it knocks against the skull. So, a car seat that is used properly actually reduces the risk of an injury, hospitalization, or even death by almost two thirds. So, interesting. Let's move on to an interesting question from a parent. So, in the same vein, what are the traffic regulations in Singapore regarding the switch from rear-facing to forward-facing car seats? So, this uh, snapshot of uh, the website is actually from the Traffic Police website. Um, it's interesting to see these are the five nations that have approved car seat restraints uh, that are allowed in Singapore. So similarly, the legal statutes just state that you can have an approved child restraint that's appropriate for a person of that weight and height. So this means that it's not very prescriptive. You follow the model, it is allowed in Singapore. So as a parent, you need to exercise um, discretion on what kind of car seat you need to use in relation to your child's weight and height as well as age. I'll be sharing that in the next couple of slides. So if, if you want to check this, you can just go to the Traffic Police website and this is the Ask Amy function. You just type on car seat. And this is the most straightforward uh, way to get the above information. So these are a couple of uh, different types of car seat. Um, so for parents, um, that, you know, these are different seats that are suitable for the child's age, the weight and height. I'll be speaking a little bit more on what is suitable for the rear facing in the couple more slides. I would say follow the manufacturer's recommendation regarding the installation, the weight and height limit, as well as how to use the seat properly. So for example, no car seat in the front seat. Yeah. So this infographic is actually from the SingHealth website. It can also be found on the KK website, where you can actually find a list of certified child passenger safety technicians in Singapore.
example, some of them, majority of them are in GPA, but you also have some that are out in the private sector. Should you actually need help with car seats, for example, recommendations, installation, checking of the car seats? So looking at this infographic, you can see that the recommendation uh, for rear-facing car seats is from birth until age 2 or for as long as possible until they exceed the highest weight and height allowed for the seat. So that means if they are older than 2 but they still fit the weight and height, you try to keep the child in the rear-facing for what is possible uh, what is possible with your family. Because they, they, of course, as the child grows older, there's some resistance, their legs are a little bit long, they don't know where to put their feet. So um, the recommendation, again, just to emphasize, is at least be two years old. So there is another infographic I'm going to show. So this, again, is from the Traffic Police, as well as the Automobile Association of Singapore. This actually shows, in this picture, all the way to four years old for best protection. This is the stand that is taken in some of the American states as well, where it's mandatory to keep a child in the rear facing up to about three or four years old. But it really depends on the type of your car seat as well as the weight and height of the child. So why rear facing seats? So this photo actually shows what happens uh, graphically. During an accident, especially a front-on collision, a child sitting in a forward-facing seat can be thrown forward and sustain injuries to the head, neck and the spine. So rear-facing seats, in contrast, will actually cradle the child's entire body and distribute the crash forces evenly. So this reduces the risk of injuries in a car crash. So it's important to note that uh, even in a rear-facing car seat, you can have injuries, but the degree of injuries will be less. Yeah. So you should balance the safety recommendations as well as your needs and concerns for your child and try keeping your infants and young children in a real facing seat for as long as possible until they exceed the weight and height allowed for the seat and preferably at least after two years old. I hope that answers uh, Mummy or Daddy's question. So we're going to move to a couple more questions. So this is another tough scenario to be in as listed by the Mummy in this, uh, Mummy, sorry, Mummy or Daddy in this speech bubble and it could actually happen with a high chair, a potty, wearing a mask. So it's important to note that what do all have, what do all these scenarios have in common is that it is something new to the child. It will take some time. So some children take to something new a little bit easier. Um, it's also easier to start from young but do know that as the child develops a couple of new milestones whether it's strange anxiety, the fear of being alone, uh, there may be hiccups along the way. So I'm going to move to the next slide to share a couple of uh, strategies that we could use. So without knowing the actual specifics, uh, sorry, without knowing the specifics of the actual circumstances listed by the parents uh, regarding the difficulty keeping the child in the car seat, I have listed big principal groups, which I think we could all, uh, which I usually apply, whether it's at work or at home. So the parent, the child, or the situation. So as a parent, it's very easy to give in, right? But it's actually important to focus on the goal, which is car safety in, sorry, child safety in the car and getting the child to sit in the car seat. So if we do give in, it becomes just a little bit harder the very next time to get the child, especially a toddler to listen because they are in this bargaining phase, right? If I give in, I throw my tantrum a little bit more, it becomes a little bit easier, right? So it's important as a parent to focus on the goal. So for the child, try listing the reasons behind your child's behavior. 
right? Well, they're in the car. Are they scared? Are they lonely? Are they frightened? Are they bored? Hungry? Or simply just tired? So this will allow you to address the needs accordingly. Focusing on the situation also allows you and your child to have an easier time. So state with uh, firmness and maintain eye contact. Tell your child, we are going to visit grandma. We will be going to the supermarket, the play gym, or we are going to have fun. So I've also listed a couple of uh, steps and suggestions to prepare your child before and during the car ride. And this preparation could include letting your child play with the car seat at home, or reading some age-appropriate uh, topic-dedicated books on the car slide, which I'll show a couple of examples later on. So what I have found personally uh, useful is to engage your child during the journey, whether with their favourite toy, their book, or simply singing and having a conversation with them. So these are a couple of uh, topic-dedicated books, and the selection can be actually pretty amazing and uh, surprising. So moving on to a couple more aspects of road safety. So uh, there are a couple of tips here, and I do wish to emphasize the hand holding as in the previous case, as well as being a good role model on the road. So no running across the road because your child is likely to fall asleep, right? So this photo is of the Singapore Road Safety Park. It's an excellent place for school excursions where children can role play as pedestrians, drivers, or cyclists while learning the importance of road safety. And hopefully when the pandemic eases up, this is a place where you can go to have fun as a family actually. So another very interesting question from a parent uh, regarding traveling by bus or train. So again, I have categorized the suggestions into three uh, to big principal groups, um, parent as well as child. I think these could be very specific. So it needs to be individualized. So in your mind, you think about you as a parent or your child, right? So in terms of the age and the developmental milestones of the kid. So I think it's also important to visualize the journey so that it helps you to prepare better, whether it's pit stops for a toilet break and a toilet training child or diaper changes, or do I actually need a stroller to help me get from the train station to uh, the bus stop. So I decided to put this uh, uh, to, to put this um, pamphlet up. It's actually available on the LTA website. It's regarding the use of strollers on public buses from 2017. So this is just a pictorial to show eight big steps in case parents are interested. I would encourage you to go on the website to actually find out a little bit more information, especially how do you actually load the stroller on the bus and what are the rules could you keep the stroller open, for example. So now we're going to move to the very last section of the talk. Uh, so a little more graphic in terms of some of the injuries. I promise you there are no gory photos, uh, but uh, some of the descriptions could be a little bit harrowing for some parents or even children, yeah? Because I noticed a couple of kids uh, present in the uh, window. So these are the kind of injuries that we will be covering in the last section of the talk. No actual photos, they are mainly uh, graphic cartoons. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about falls because we know there's most uh, common kind of injury. So it can be scary and the mechanism of the fall can contribute to the seriousness of a fall or the injury sustained. So for example, if you land on a hard surface versus you land on the playground and the padded surface, for example. If you fall from a height but you hit a couple of things along the way versus you fall and you don't hit anything. These are different factors that we look at when evaluating the mechanism of uh, the fall. 
So remember that the general rule of thumb, as mentioned earlier, is the child height. So a baby falling from a diaper changing table will be more at risk of a significant head injury of compared to a toddler because an infant is much uh, shorter with regards to length as compared to a toddler. So anything more than a child height will be significant. So these are some risk factors that I've listed for major head injury and we actually use this as doctors when we're assessing a child for serious head injury. So a couple of uh, symptoms as well as risk factors. So do know that the greater the number of risk factors, the more likely the chance of a serious head injury and you should, uh, you should head to the hospital or call ambulance and ambulance immediately, especially for a child with drowsy. So it's important to note also that these symptoms may not occur immediately and may actually take some time to develop. Some of them could occur over a couple of hours to a couple of days. So besides uh, fractures, besides being broken bones, that's what, that's what the parents usually ask me, the fractures are broken bone, right? Yeah, it is a broken bone, but uh, there are different things about the fractures, right? Where the, where the fracture occurs, whether it's just a broken bone or it's crooked, for example, uh, these are different factors that we look at when we assess the injury. So this is an infographic from Akron's Children's Hospital website. And it actually shows some interesting facts about fractures. And these are actually very pretty similar in our local context, um, including the common causes. So mostly from Fort Monkey Bar. The only thing that we do not have is probably snow bleeding, right? Uh, but the other common thing is that of the most common kid complaints about wearing a cast, itching as well as the smell. So uh, applies in our local context as well. So the good news is that children do heal much better compared to adults even if surgery is required. So this slide shows some newer treatment options for lower limb fractures such as walking boots in kid sizes. So um, the issue in the past was that you know with the calf and crutches, the child is actually not able to balance the crutches especially if they are younger. The walking boots do help with that. These are also, uh, this is also an open cast. They are also shower friendly uh, as compared to a um, uh, plaster of Paris cast, which is not waterproof. And this is actually more tolerable in our humid climate. So this is an option that's available in, in our clinic over here. So with regards to lacerations, so this image actually shows the different kind of wounds. And on the right upper, over here, so abrasions, although painful, are quite superficial. So you can get these, for example, when you fall rollerblading, cycling, you scrape on the, the ground, and it is an abrasion. So it is superficial, as you can see from this tutorial, but they can be pretty painful. So remember that it just do not need to be sharp to actually cause a laceration. You can run straight into a wall, and if the force is big enough, you can actually still tear skin in part and have a cut. Uh, these are some wound options. I'll be showing pictures of the first three. They are not really very scary. So these are sturdy strips. They're actually medical tape, but they can only be used for very superficial lacerations and they're also not waterproof. So this is a scalp laceration, a little bit of blood. Apologies, the children are around. So it's a hair acquisition technique that we actually use for scalp lacerations. So you see, we use the hair, we knot it, and you provide some additional tensile strength. You coat the wound with tissue glue. So it, uh, tissue glue is a special medical adhesive, not your super glue that you get from a shop. And you can use this elsewhere in certain areas of the body. We need to assess the suitability, not only the scalp, but it can only be used for very superficial wounds. 
So this is a zip tie looking device. So this is called Ibiat tie. They are medical zip ties which can be used in case of stitches or visible wounds. And you adjust uh, the strength by dialing the strength by turning the zip tie and you can achieve better closure especially when the swelling reduces. So this is a needle-free alternative for laceration but it can feel uncomfortable on the skin and we need to assess the surface which this can actually be applied. So foreign bodies, uh, so this actually actually shows, sorry, this slide actually shows x-rays of ingested foreign bodies, but remember that they can be inserted into ears, nose or throat. And foreign bodies into noses are actually more hazardous as there is a chance of airway obstruction. So in general, the rule for ingested foreign bodies is that if the object is small enough to fit into an old film roll container, or what is shown over here, a second series Singapore 50 cent coin, then you are fine. Anything bigger than that has a chance of obstruction in the intestine. So this was a photo I think that was sent out in a pre-event teaser. And this is actually a photo of a five-month-old who swallowed a ring. The parents suspected and we confirmed it on the X-ray. Uh, it was too big, they didn't move down uh, despite zero X-rays. And so the child had to undergo endoscopy to get it removed. So these are some foreign bodies listed over here that we have seen in choking episodes as well as ingested and uh, inserted foreign bodies. Uh, the stories that you know you can tell when uh, the objects that kids have this, this inserted into your noses or the ears. Very amusing. So these are some suggestions of what forms of certain foods we can provide in weaning infants. So in terms of alternatives, for example, instead of a raw carrot, try it being shredded, for example. So this, of course, reduces the chance of choking. Similarly, uh, in, the, in the photo on the top, longitudinal cuts of these fruits and vegetables are safer. Especially, uh, we do see a mixture of baby that weaning for now. Um, some parents do like that. So it's definitely recommended to provide cuts of food in a, in a safe, uh, um, safe in, in longitudinal, which are definitely safer than round or cross-sectional uh, forms. So I've also listed some measures over here to prevent asphyxiation, which are non-foreign body related. Of these, I've already mentioned close sleeping as well as securing of the cords and lines. We have two more injuries left. So there are different sources of serious burns in children and these include hot water and fire. When this happens, the important thing to remember is to remove the source of the burns and the scalds and immediately wash the affected area under running water with large amounts of cool water. This is important because it prevents the burns from worsening and progressing. That means involving other areas and uh, getting worse from a first degree to a second degree, for example. So also remember that burns are inevitably painful. This is because the skin is much more sensitive than usual after the injury and the normal feeling of air, which doesn't bother us, will now cause pain. And that's why your child is probably screaming in pain after a burn. So what we do in the hospital is that we usually have to cover the burn, the wound with a special dressing. You can't use gauze or tissue because it's going to stick to broken skin. And we usually give pain medication. So the measures mentioned in this slide are quite straightforward. I'm not going to go into detail because some of them are already repeated from the previous slides uh, in the indoor safety. And the prevention of burns uh, is an example of how we could try a child's eye view to better understand how these could actually be hazards. So this is another interesting question from a parent. Thank you very much about fire safety. 
so these are two websites. Um, I couldn't find any online that were medically related. So these are two websites with some well concise uh, tips on fire safety. Um, I'll be happy to share them with you. I've listed one of them where there are seven points that are listed here. I think that is is uh, useful to go through your, with your child if it's age appropriate. Actually, nowadays, even in uh, my kids' school, for example, they go through fire drills with the children even at a young age. And I've highlighted the numbers of emergency services because I found that when unfortunate circumstances happen, parents sometimes forget the emergency numbers to call when in a state of panic. And this is also true for our non-local friends where the numbers will be very, very different. Okay, this is the last injury that I'll be going through, uh, accidental poisoning. Again, big clothes with child, substance as well as environment. In children, remember that they like to explore. And very often, we are, what are we guilty of? We tell the child that the medicine is sweet and a lot of medications are sweet. So it is inevitable that the child will try and look for the sweet, especially if they like the taste. Um, and hunt, as we have seen earlier, if they are determined to source, uh, to look for the medicine. With regard to the medicine itself, one important thing in my experience that I would like to highlight is that there are different available concentrations of paracetamol depending on why you purchase it from. The most common is 120 mg in 5 mils, but we have 250 in 5 mils, 500 mg in 5 mils. And then what happens as a parent is that when you give the medicine, if you don't look at the bottle and the concentration with the stated dose, you can end up unintentionally overdosing your child. This could also be a problem when there are different caregivers and they don't communicate. So you give this bottle, I give this bottle, I give this time, and then the child inevitably gets an overdose over the 24 hours or even longer. So we have seen a couple of these appear in hospital and essentially we have to evaluate the toxicity of the medication. The other environmental factors would be ease of access, thinking about keeping your, uh, your medicines in cabinets and sometimes whether they are in childhood bottles. Most of the substances in your house uh, are usually quite uh, minimally toxic. Most of the time, you just cause a bit of tummy upset. The exceptions are pesticides, cleaning devices, or chlorine or ammonia-based features. Those will probably be a lot more dangerous. So prevention, uh, prevention of uh, poisoning. So we have mentioned about keeping this away from a child to reach. We should also start from young to teach a child what is dangerous and to keep away from them. So this actually concludes my section of uh, the injuries. There were a couple more questions that uh, a couple of parents actually sent in regarding a safe uh, classroom environment. This is, it doesn't actually form under the domain of the talk, but what I've done is that I've just put up the actor, uh link. So you could actually uh, have in your own time a little bit of a closer look at this website um, just to find out about classroom uh, safety. And then uh, this is another question listed by a parent. I think in the interest of time, if you do want to take a couple of uh, questions, uh, I do have, I did prepare a slide on this, but we will probably send it to everybody else uh, because it needs a little bit of time in processing. Uh, yeah, so we'll, I'll try to explain it another time. So I think uh, I'm just going to run through the last few slides and then we'll head over to a Q&A. So this is a first aid box. I would highly encourage everybody uh, because the first aid box applies to everybody, whether it's a child or whether adult at your home. And sometimes it does cut down on going to a clinic or just for medical care, for example, washing the wound and testing that, hey, it's not so bad, stop bleeding already. These are a couple of references that I've used in my talk. I'll be happy to share with anybody who would like a closer look. 
um, and thank you very much for my talk. Um, yeah, so I'm going to open it to Vipasha to chair the Q&A session. Thank you so much, Dr. Lin. That was uh, not just insightful, but also a treasure trove of information and resources that I'm sure the uh, listeners will find very useful and they can refer to it after your talk. And thank you also for sharing all those real life examples and stories. Uh, they are, uh, they, I'm sure some of us may have been a little distressed listening to them, but at the same time, it's important for us to be aware because these are real dangers and these are real situations and can happen to any one of us. Uh, so thank you so much for that sharing. We did get quite a few questions. Okay, and good. Yeah, so we will try and get to uh, as many as possible. Okay. Um, so the first question is about baby walkers. And um, the question was uh, asked about, are they banned because of uh, falls or because they actually hinder development? And uh, uh, the uh, it's also about, is there a negative effect um, on the child's growth and development in terms of his hips and his legs uh, using a baby walker? If you could share some information on that. Okay, uh, excellent question. So um, the ban on walkers actually from the AAP, if you look at the different statements and the updated uh, statements and advisories are actually on the injuries that are sustained in, the, in, in America. In Singapore itself, we haven't actually come up with an official statement on banning walkers, um, but we do extrapolate a lot of information and we get a lot of guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics. So again, what is listed is actually the variety and kind of injuries that children actually sustain from baby walkers. The other aspect of the question with regards to development, that's actually a very good question. So uh, in, in terms of the baby walker, because it's one size, right? Your child has a different size, for example. I have noticed that when uh, different sizes of children, for example, when they're in the baby walker, the position of the feet, it is a little bit awkward. And most of the time when the child is actually able to stand, you're not actually conforming to the seat support that's in the baby walker. You're just essentially using the baby walker to stand up and that's when the child actually learns to walk. It's quite difficult to learn to walk in a crouch position. So for those, per uh, those reasons, personally, I would not recommend a baby walker. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, another question that came in was, what is the difference between a forward-facing car seat and a booster seat? Forward-facing. Okay, let me just... That's a good question as well. Maybe I apologize. Maybe I was a little bit far forward facing. Uh, so, sorry, I don't really have this question. With regards to the age recommendation or the actual kind of car seat? I think with regard to, so you've got the forward facing car seat and a booster oh. seat. And what is the ah, difference? This one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, maybe this graphic is a little bit easier. The kind of car seat, okay. Uh, okay, so, sorry, I'm going to go back to the other side. Okay, so this is a forward-facing seat. It's essentially an extension of uh, your rear-facing seat that's faced forward, but the car seat still has a harness in, inside too. So that means there's a harness from the car seat itself, and you buckle the child using the car seat, uh, using the seat belt of the harness in the car seat itself. A booster seat no longer has a seat belt. You use the seat belt of the car and you buckle it. So it's in actually, if you look at the spectrum, the safest is actually rear facing with the own seat belt, forward facing with a seat belt harness, and this is a seat belt from the car itself. 
So the car seat no longer has a seatbelt. So this is uh, for a child who still requires because there is protection from the side and the head as well as the back. So you actually use a, the seatbelt of the car and you strap it across and then you belt the child like this. So in terms of seatbelt safety, the five-point harness is actually the safest. So it's important to look at your car seat to see whether it's five-point as well. With this lap, with the seatbelt from the car, it's no longer a five-point. So you need to make sure that it's fitted, whether it's an isofix, whether with a car seater, whether with additional buckles, to make sure that it's really tight. Thank you. Uh, moving on to the next question, and this is around ingesting foreign bodies. Um, so, um, so is it? Um, so it says uh, we are in a slightly better situation of the ingested foreign bodies smaller than a fifty cent coin. And does this apply to batteries as well, given the chemicals present in batteries? Excellent question. So, in ingestion or insertion, or it doesn't say ingestion. ingestion. Okay. Yeah, so batteries alone are definitely toxic. Uh, so it, de it depends on the kind of batteries as well. We have disc batteries, we have big batteries. So the question itself is not very clear with regard to batteries, but in general, um, we should remove the battery uh, because they're also corrosive, they're acidic. And sometimes what happens is that children ingest more than a battery, right? They could be ingesting other materials together. If you get a battery and a magnet, for example, it's a recipe for disaster. So in general, all the batteries should be removed. And um, the kind of batteries that we see is really quite amazing in terms of the sizes that, that children uh, ingest. The other thing is that children like to ingest button batteries, not ingest, sorry, insert button batteries on their noses. And we have seen kids who have inserted one and then the other one, and it corrodes through the nasal septum because it's acidic. So again, batteries are extremely dangerous. Um, in addition to this, the question was also about the uh, amount of um, foreign body ingested, which could be harmful. Um, and the parent who asked this question asked if 50 cents was uh, something that's a sort of a, I won't say a guideline, but is that anything beyond a 50 cent uh, coin uh, could be more harmful. Uh, is that true or is that something that... Um, uh, as in uh, quantity or uh, quantity. Uh, dimension? Uh, quantity, I think she meant quantity. Ah, uh, quantity, okay. So if it's many 50 cent coins, for example, and it's all within the diameter of 25 mm, then it's actually okay. Uh, because what they will do is that with the peristalsis or the movement of the stomach or the intestine, they will all pass through. So the diameter is just a guideline um, because anything larger than 25 mm, the potential areas of blockage are from the stomach to the small intestine or from the small intestine to the large uh, intestine. So those are the areas where you can potentially get blocked. I did not include other information. So other things like uh, which are not round, for example, that are linear, yeah, um, that are linear, then we actually use the diameter of about six. So there are different dimensions for different objects. So if you are not certain, of course, it would be good to have your child seen by a doctor. And the other thing to note there is that regardless of the dimensions of the objects that are swallowed, so if they have sharp perforated uh, surfaces, or if your child is symptomatic, meaning you suspect your child has eaten something that's less than a 50 cent coin, but your child has a lot of pain. So that's very unusual because in something small, you would not expect a significant symptom. 
So if your child is vomiting, your child is very bad tummy pain, your child is uh, uh, very lethargic, for example, it's not in keeping with dimensions of the foreign body digested, then I would suggest coming to the hospital because a thorough evaluation needs to be done. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, the next question is about food and if a child accidentally consumes food that he or she is allergic to, um, what is it that you can do immediately at home before the child's taken to the hospital? Mm, okay, um, the degree of allergy is not uh, mentioned here, but it is a very good question uh, because allergy actually can manifest as just purely skin or it could be something that's life-threatening. Uh, a reaction could be life-threatening with every involvement, whether your blood pressure is actually low. But if your child has accidentally ingested the food that you know that the child is allergic to, if you do have any antihistamines at home, it would be good to give the, the medicine very quickly. So if, for example, if it's a skin reaction, then the antihistamine will help. Unfortunately, if it's a life-threatening reaction involving the breathing or your blood pressure, then the antihistamine is not going to help very much. Then the, my suggestion would be to call the ambulance because what happens now, there was a recent change in guidelines. In the past, what happens with SCDF and the ambulance officers, they never gave EpiPen, which is an adrenaline-filled injection to children. It was only allowed for adults. But in recent times, in uh, my last uh, month itself, I had a couple of cases where the children were small and with life-threatening manifestations of an allergy to food or to drugs, the SCDF ambulance officers called the doctor, confirmed off-site. Doctor confirmed the dose, they administered it and made a big difference. If it wasn't given, high chance the child may have been in a worse state on coming to the hospital. The other thing is that if your child does have life-threatening uh, allergies, whether it's to food or to um, sorry, whether it's to food or to uh, drugs, for example, it is good to give an EpiPen. Um, you should speak to your doctor about using an EpiPen because some parents are very apprehensive about jabbing their child, but it does make a difference. And the last thing, of course, well, sorry, I forgot to mention, please make sure your child does not take the food anymore. But I've seen kids still holding on to the bread, the biscuit when they come to the hospital. Yeah, so please remove the inciting agent, whether it's a drug, whether it's a food. Whether, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, okay, uh, we have uh, time for just one more question. A question we go quickly uh, uh, and address it. So the question is, what about magnetic ma magnetic tiles? Because that's something that uh, children uh, tend to play with. Um, it's, it's one of the sort of learning resources that are available in the market. Is it safe for children to be playing with them? Yeah. So uh, again, a good question. Something that I was uh, grappling with as a mother myself, I thought, oh, this is a great toy, you know, you know, it fosters creativity, it's fantastic. So the thing about the towels again is that uh, it needs to be age appropriate. So this question doesn't actually uh, illustrate how old the child is. But having said that, even older children do tend to put stuff in their mouth. So I think the other thing besides teaching your child from young the dangers of swallowing not just magnets but anything else in particular that shouldn't be in their mouth should be inculcated from a very young age. The other thing is that what we also have to do again with uh, the watchful supervision you let your child play in a distance but you still watch your child. Um, most of the towels that I've seen on the market for the younger children are pretty large but I've seen some of the newer brands coming up where they're really tiny, where they're small little parts. So those are the ones that place a hazard. In general, if you swallow one magnet, 
just one magnet within the dimension and the child is asymptomatic with no complaints at all, we will usually just do x-rays and let it pass out. The problem comes when you swallow more than one. Because if it sticks together, what happens is that they stick at the wall of the intestine and it's very, very difficult to remove. Then what happens is that it causes uh, necrosis or it perforates through the wall of the intestine. So this means going in full-on surgery to remove the connecting magnets because no scope is going to help you remove it. So that becomes a problem. Yeah. If there is perforation through the intestine wall, then you run into a serious problem because the intestine contents will spill out and the child can become very, very sick. So we haven't really seen that in Singapore, but if you look at the American stories, there are plenty of very horrible stories. So I think large towels, teaching our child not to put them in their mouth with supervision are fine. But if they're very small parts, you should exercise caution and take them away. Or if your child is a habitual mouth explorer, then a no-no. Right, so that's all. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Apologies if we couldn't get to all your questions, but what we will do is we will put this um, video recording available and make this available to you. We also will have this available as a podcast and we will also put together an article highlighting some of the resources that you can access after the sharing. So a huge thank you to Dr. Lin for that generous and very insightful sharing. Thank you, everyone so much for spending all this time putting together this wonderful sharing and also making it so meaningful for our listeners and thank you so much to the viewers who joined us today during your lunch hour uh, we have uh, if you want more information on child safety or respectful parenting or parenting in general we have loads of information in our parenting section and a slight apologies for the plug but it's called parenting.eatonhouse.edu.sg and where you will be able to access some of our ebooks guides podcast etc so thank you again for joining us and we will see you in august for our next parenting webinar until then take care stay safe and happy parenting thank you